So thankful for everyone that's here. Let's go to Matthew chapter 5. So in our series through the Gospel of Matthew, this is message number 13, entitled Love and the Unlovable. Matthew chapter 5, we'll be looking at beginning with verse 38 down to the end of the chapter in verse 48. You have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that you resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love them which love you, what reward have you? Do not even the publicans the same? And if you salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Now there are a few different ways that we refer to the kingdom. Uh, We talk about the kingdom of heaven. We talk about the kingdom of God the kingdom of the Son, the Davidic kingdom, the Messianic kingdom, the future kingdom, the millennial kingdom. There's a number of ways that we talk about it. We're all, all these terms are referring to the future kingdom that Daniel said the God of heaven would set up on the earth to rule over all other kingdoms and nations. That's there in Daniel chapter 2, verse 44. And so when we think about that kingdom, we think about the various ways that it is described when that curse has been reversed from the earth. And so this is one of the familiar passages, uh, Isaiah chapter 65, verses 19 to 25. And I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people, and the voice of weeping shall be no more heard in her, nor the voice of crying. There shall be no more thence an infant of days, nor an old man that hath not filled his days, For the child shall die an hundred years old, but the sinner being a hundred years old shall be accursed. And they shall build houses and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them. They shall not build and another inhabit, they shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree are the days of my people, and mine elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth for trouble, for they are the seed of the blessed of the Lord and their offspring with them. And it shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer, and while they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together, and the lion shall eat straw like the bullock, and the dust shall be the serpent's meat. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, saith the Lord. So it is described as a time when people will be living, they will be building, they will be planting, They will be reaping, they will be playing, they'll be rejoicing, eating and drinking, and and even dying, though after a very long time. Now that's a description of life, and I guess we could say death, in the kingdom to come. But what will the government 
of that kingdom be like? Who is the lawgiver? Who is the judge? Who is it that maintains justice? You even have there in Isaiah the mention of sinners that will be there. Well, Christ is obviously the lawgiver and the judge. He is the one who will maintain justice. We uh, have looked at Psalm 2 and Psalm 110, though Psalm 110 more, more recently, uh, about how that he will in that day rule over the nations with a rod of iron where he is going to um, correct and punish and he's going to maintain perfect justice throughout the world. The prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 to 7, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and, the, and peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So Jesus will reign successfully over the earth from the throne of David and over the nations before he delivers the kingdom to the Father for the eternal ages. This is what Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 24 to 28. So obviously that aspect of the government, there is a king, King Jesus, who will reign over his kingdom and over all of the nations of the world. But his resurrected saints will also have some part in this government. And there's probably a lot of questions and things we could ask about that, and we, we just don't know the answers to. But think about passages like Revelation chapter 2, verses 26 and 27. And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations." And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I have received of my Father. Revelation 5.10 And has made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. Revelation chapter 20 and verse number 4 And I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. And we can also say, even more specifically than this, the apostles will have part in this reign of the kingdom. Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit in, his, in the throne of his glory, ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So think about this picture for a moment. We have mortal nations, people, obviously Israel, be many of, of Israel in that day, living in mortal bodies, they will live a long time, but they will experience death. At least, at least some of them will. There will be those that will be born during this time. By the time you get to the end of this thousand-year reign, we have nations that rebel. So you will have those that do not believe, do not come to faith, and they will rebel against Christ, and, and they will be 
destroyed. So you've got mortal people living in this kingdom amongst all the nations of the world. You have Jesus Christ who has returned to earth, who will reign from the throne of David in Zion there in Jerusalem, Israel being restored around him. You have 12 thrones that will be set up in Israel, and on those 12 thrones will be sitting 12 apostles that will be judging the 12 tribes of Israel during that time. Also, we've read about these other resurrected saints who will live and reign with Christ on the earth for a thousand years. So you have mortal body people in the kingdom, and then you have resurrected saints, believers in Jesus Christ. Remember, Revelation 20 tells us the rest of the dead didn't live until the thousand years were done. You have resurrected saints, believers, followers of Christ that are going to share in, in part of this reign over cities and over nations. And, and, and again, how all that's going to, to look and to play out, we don't exactly know. But the mortal nations of the earth will be ruled over by Christ and his resurrected saints with him. Now this brings us to an important contrast between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The Old Covenant established Israel as a nation, a geopolitical entity with a civil government, with territory and such. They were given legal and judicial authority for governance of the nation. They, uh, the Old Covenant law also established foreign policy concerning the other nations and how they were to interact with them. Well, the New Covenant, on the other hand, does not establish a nation as such. The New Covenant doesn't establish a Jewish nation. There already has been a, a Jewish nation, and which will be restored. So it doesn't establish a Jewish nation. But neither does the New Covenant establish a quote-unquote Christian nation. So no judgment, no legal authority is given to believers in Christ to judge and execute punishment upon people in this world, in this present time. Jesus, as the new covenant lawgiver on the mount in Galilee, is also here giving his law for this present age when the new covenant has been inaugurated, but the kingdom is not here. All right, so this is an important distinction to keep in mind as we look at the end of Matthew chapter number 5 and the end of these six contrasts with the Old Covenant law. Jesus, through this law, his new covenant law, has not established any of us as legal authorities with any sort of civil jurisdiction to make judgments and to um, render punishments on people nations, cities, communities, what have you. So this is an important distinction to keep in mind. Now, verses 33 to 37, which is what we looked at last time, is where Jesus legislated the speech of 
kingdom citizens in this present world before the kingdom comes. So the, the normal speech of believers we see there is to be, is to be simple and it's to be honest. Jesus speaks of the use of oaths and vows and how they were used to affirm truthfulness. But when our speech is free of the desire to deceive or to intentionally mislead, we don't need such language. So Jesus says very simply, let your yes mean yes. Let your no mean no. He's commanding simple, honest speech and faithfulness to your own word. So as we look at verses 38 to 48, as we are finishing out this chapter, uh, we have the fifth and the sixth contrast with the Old Covenant law and, and really completes this section of Jesus' teaching that we refer to as the Sermon on the Mount before he, he proceeds forward in, in the rest of it. And Jesus continues here to speak about relational righteousness. And in this case, the relations are those who will do us evil. How do we respond righteously to that now the last two contrasts that he gives here they're very closely connected and they give us further example of how we are supposed to let our light shine so that men may see our good works and when we keep in mind the old covenant and the new covenant contrasts and the governance of the kingdom we can see then that Jesus is not here talking about criminal acts. He's not here talking about international military actions. He's not, uh, he's not even here talking about self-defense and, and all of those sort of things. Again, he's concerned with interpersonal relationships and wrongs that we have and will suffer. So as we look at this, we'll look at each contrast, verses 38 to 42, where Jesus speaks of, uh, an eye for an eye in the Old Covenant, and verses 43 to 48, where Jesus commands to love your enemies. So let's start here with the first part, uh, verse 38. You have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. Now Jesus begins here quoting from the Old Testament, as he has done in each of these contrasts, and he's quoting from passages such as Exodus chapter 21, verses 22 to 25, Leviticus chapter 24 and verse 20, Deuteronomy chapter 19, um, verses 18 to 21. Now, there are a few important things that you need to note about the principle of eye for eye in the Old Covenant law. So eye for eye was a principle of justice in the punishment of offenses. It was regulated by courts and the legal civil authorities in Israel. Uh, and that's notable in places like Exodus chapter 21, verse 22, Numbers chapter, 20, uh, chapter 35, rather, verses 9 to 34. In other words, the principle of eye for eye in the Old Covenant law was never an allowance of personal vengeance. So your neighbor steals your goat, you take your hatchet and go over and cut off your neighbor's hand. No, that was never allowed. In fact, that very thing, personal vengeance along that line, was forbidden by the Old Covenant law. And that is an area where there seems to be some confusion and, and misunderstanding. 
Eye for eye is a principle of justice within the Old Covenant law. And actually, when you study these passages, you study the Old Covenant law, and you see how this principle is referred to, it was actually a restraining principle. It was actually um, a way of, of limiting the severity of punishments to not exceed the severity of the crimes. So, for instance, someone maybe stole some money from their neighbor, and then, ha- and then you know, the neighbor has them executed. Well, that would not be an appropriate punishment for that crime. And there were all these different ways of, of, of these things being dealt with that specified in the Old Covenant law. So the principle of eye for eye is, is in some ways, it's, it's oh, that's, you know, that's harsh, that's um, difficult. And I suppose that in some ways it could be, but it actually was restraining so that the punishment should not go over. It shouldn't be um, excessive. It should be um, commensurate, as you might say, um, with the crimes that have been committed. So what eye for eye did in the Old Covenant law was to establish a just and equitable system of judgment in the nation of Israel. Now, look at verses, let's just look at the the rest of these as a group here, verses 39 to 42. But I say unto you that you resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. So he begins, Jesus begins by saying, not to resist evil or an an evil person. And so as we look at the context, we can see that the evil person that Jesus is talking about is, is someone who, who would wrong and despise you. And what he's saying by resist not, he's, he's speaking of not retaliating against one who would wrong and despise you. Now, Jesus then goes on to give four examples of what sort of wrongs that he is talking about. And these include personal insult, smiting someone on the right cheek and him saying turn to the other also and, and this here about smiting on the right cheek is not it's not about it's not about the the injury being being done as far as the physical injury or or physical hurt um being being felt it, it's about it's it, it's an insult it's it's a despising he talks about abusing legal action uh, someone that would sue you to take away your coat. Um, He talks about compulsion, whoever would compel you to go a mile. And the same word um, is used of the Roman soldiers that compelled Simon of of Cyrene to carry the the cross of of Jesus. And he then talks about gifts or loans, him that asks or from him that would borrow from thee. So he gives four different examples here of some of the wrongs that he's talking about. And if we put these in context... And we compare them with the setting that he's already established, which is the principle of eye for eye in the Old Covenant law. Then we realize that what is common in these four examples is that Jesus is obviously giving all of these some legal overtone. It's obvious that his kingdom citizens are not in his kingdom. 
His kingdom citizens are living in this present world under earthly governments. Now, earthly governments have been ordained by God. In other words, it is legitimate that there be civil authorities. That is a legitimate function. God has so ordained that it would be. But they're not yet. These these kingdoms of the world and these civil authorities of the world are not yet in subjection to the king of God's right hand. And so they are not fully just, and sometimes they are thoroughly corrupt. So the command is that we not use the courts and the legal system for personal vengeance and for retribution. Now, I don't believe that Jesus is is eliminating seeking proper legal recourse. And and if you sometimes would read um, Peter's epistles, especially, he he seems to be um, elaborating on on some of these things that Jesus is talking about here in chapter 5 and particularly toward the end. But it also presents us that we have some options when such things are used against us. And Paul seemed like that he was drawing from this teaching of Jesus when he addressed the problem of lawsuits in the church at Corinth. That's in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 to 8 in particular. So if we, if we think about the way that Paul's made application of this, when, and again, if you compare Peter's writing and his epistles, and what Jesus is saying here with the, with the legal overtone, the question would be, if, if the courts, if seeking redress in the courts would cause your salt to lose savor or it would cause your light to be covered by a basket, then the implication is you're better off to suffer the wrong. Now again, we're not talking about criminal actions And Jesus is by no way saying, well, a Christian should never use legal means of of redress and and such. Again, he's, he's talking about taking personal vengeance. He's talking about taking personal retaliation. And again, if, if taking such action would cause you to lose your light, then it's far better to suffer reproach for Christ than to bring reproach on Christ. And I believe that's what the conclusion Paul comes to when he had the problem with the lawsuits within the church at Corinth. And I believe that Je- that is what Jesus is getting at here in what he's talking about. We do have to be concerned about the gospel. We do have to be concerned about the cause of Christ. And what I mean, what do we think being told that that if we're going to live godly in Christ Jesus, we will suffer persecution. What do you think that's going to mean? So clearly there are times when we have this option. We should not resort to personal vengeance and personal retaliation in this way. And then we get the last, the sixth contrast. It begins here in verse number 43 where Jesus says to love your enemies. You have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemies. Or enemy. So the last contrast here refers to the Old Covenant law 
And Jesus uses sort of a blend of, a, of quote and summary reference. Now, the command to love neighbor is given in Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18. And of course, more than just love your neighbor is stated there, but that is specifically stated there. And neighbor in the context, when we look in the Old Covenant law, neighbor generally referred to a fellow Israelite, so, someone that, that was of um, the nation of Israel, and there would be different classifications for foreigners that would be called strangers, and then, of course, you had enemies, and you had different classifications of people, but generally, that's what neighbor pointed to. So neighbor generally meant a fellow Israelite, but they were also commanded in other places that they were to love strangers. They were to love foreigners that were in their midst in places like Exodus chapter 22 and verse 21, and Leviticus chapter 19 and verse number 34. Now, the command to hate your enemy is not given in so many words. In other words, you're not going to take your concordance and find, thou shalt hate thine enemies. You're not going to find that phrase in the Old Covenant law. But if you study the Old Covenant law, you will, you will see that this is actually a summary of the Old Covenant law's commands concerning their enemy nations. Don't forget that when they came out of Egypt and they're finally going to cross into the promised land, they, they were given the command essentially to obliterate those nations that were in that land in front of them. Well, if we think about some places like Deuteronomy chapter 23 and verses 3 to 6. Now, this, this is a passage where um, the, the nation of Ammon and, and the nation of Moab were prohibited admission to the congregation of Israel because of their treatment of Israel when God brought them out of Egypt. Now, if you go on reading in that same passage, God will tell them that, that they cannot include Egypt in that list because they were strangers there. They were Egypt essentially hosted them for a while, even though <clears throat> there certainly was difficulties there. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 17 to 19 commands the obliteration of Amalek for the way that they treated Israel when God brought them out of Egypt. So even in the Old Covenant law, you have commands where they are told to wipe out entire nations. Armies, men, women, children, homes, cattle, livestock, everything. They were to level them and to obliterate them. That's commanded the Old Covenant law as well. So their commanded conquest of the land involved commands to wipe out many enemy nations. And so this is what Jesus is summarizing by saying, well, you, you know that it's, it was said to them that received the law that they were to love their neighbor as themselves, and they were to hate their enemies. They were to wipe out these enemy nations. So this is the hate that Jesus is referring to. But, it's, but we also need to note that this is something that will be done away in the new covenant and in the future kingdom. And so you read passages like Amos chapter 9, verses 11 to 15, or Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 to 4, 
and other places, and you, you will see that there will be um, all, all these many nations that will be in his kingdom, and that there will be believers, and even in the eternal ages, when you read over there in, in Revelation 21 and, and 22, even in those eternal ages, there will be nations besides Israel on the, on the earth that will be bringing their glory and, and, and honor and, and worshiping the Lord. And of course, that's a time when all sin will be done away, and there'll be no more death, and there'll, there'll be no more mortality at all. And so those nations will still be there. So again, this is something that in the new covenant is done away, and in Jesus' future kingdom. Now, in verse 44, Jesus says, But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you, and persecute you. So here Jesus gives the contrast. Now again, we have to remember that his new covenant law is not being given to a nation that is conquering land and destroying nations. That 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 was true of of Israel in the old covenant and entering into the land of Canaan. It is not true of us today or even them at that time and of course there's many that have had that those sort of ideas um and throughout history and, and even today there's still people that have those sort of ideas that that we're trying to form some sort of christian nation and christian army and we're going to take over all, all the the nations through these various actions but that's not the case at all jesus says love your enemies enemies he says are those who curse who hate, who despise, who insult, who slander, and who persecute you. Now, the emphasis here that Jesus is getting at is not returning evil for evil, not seeking vengeance, not taking retaliation against such. And notice in verse 45, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. Loving this way. Remember, Jesus just said, love your enemies. He gives this example, and then he goes on to talk about loving them that love you. Loving this way that Jesus is talking about is being like God the Father. In other words, being his children, which we've certainly seen that come up before here in this Sermon on the Mount. In other words, Jesus goes on to explain how that God shows love and good to the evil and to the good alike. Namely here, he says, he sends rain and he sends sunshine. In other words, these are blessings of life. The the seasons, um, the the planting, and the reaping, and the harvest, and all of these this cyclical nature. And it's not if we look at an area where there's a, a a drought. Well, it's not just because oh well that must be a bunch of sinners over there because their fields aren't producing. 
Well, you know, they, they had a similar reaction in, I think it's in Luke chapter 13, uh, when he says, do you, do you think that those Galileans that Pilate killed, do you think they were, were more evil? Do you think those that, that the tower fell on and killed, do you think they were more evil? No, not, not at all. We don't understand all the ways that, that God governs um, this universe that he created, but he sends the rain and the sunshine, and he does it to people that hate him. He does it to people that curse his name. He does it with people that deny his existence. And what we're going to find is that there's coming a day when all of God's goodness toward them will stand in testimony against them and their condemnation. But Jesus says, love your enemies this way. Why? Because that's the way that God loves his enemies. Love your enemies this way. This is similar to this explanation that we have for loving the stranger in Old Covenant law. So this is what was said to Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 17 to 19. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, a great God, a mighty and a terrible, which regardeth not persons nor taketh reward. He doth execute the judgment of the fatherless and the widow, and notice this, and loveth the stranger in giving him food and raiment. Love ye therefore the stranger, for ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. So God does show good, and Jesus is saying, when you love this way, you're being like your Father in heaven. Then we have verses 46 and 47 here. For if you love them which love you, what reward have you? Do not even the publicans the same? And if you salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? So here Jesus is explaining again this exceeding righteousness in relation to those who do not love us. And that really is the key. I mean, Jesus is, is not saying don't love those that, that do love you. That's obviously not what he's saying. The point is, that's easy. It's easy to love those that love us. It's easy to love those who treat us kindly, to treat, to, that they show us love, they, they show us goodness. They, it's just not, it's not difficult to do that. But Jesus is saying, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about you need to love your enemies, those that do not love you. So to love and to do good to those that do the same to us doesn't merit anything is essentially what Jesus is saying. What about those whose love for us is maybe just not what it ought to be or those who actually don't love us and, and maybe they should? Well, Jesus is saying that this is not a mature or a complete faith and righteousness. In other words, if our love is only available for those who do us good, those who show us kindness, or those who love us in, in demonstrable ways, Jesus is saying this is not a mature faith. And I, I get that from verse 48. Notice what he said. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Now Jesus said that even the publicans can do so. And what he means by that is people with no faith at all. People who do not have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling within them 
can love those that love them. He said, they, they can do that. There's, there's nothing, nothing to be um, bragged about or, or to, you know, to take pride in over that. So as we think about verse 48 then, we realize that Jesus' command here, it reflects the command of the old covenant law to be holy or separate, as that word indicates, to be holy because I am holy. Places like Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 12 and Deuteronomy chapter 18 and and verse 13. We could say, be godly or be godlike. And that's why Jesus uses this example of, of God sending the rain and the sun on the just or, or on the good and on the evil. So this is the command, be like our Father in heaven. Now, as an aside, we have to ask, if, if Jesus' command is for us to be like our Father in heaven, how can we really know what he is like unless we are committed to the reading and the studying of his word? So loving those who love us is really just going halfway. And likely we could use some tricks to make us look like we're going farther. And uh, we saw something about some of those a little bit earlier. So what Jesus has done here at the end of, of this particular chapter is really he has, he's just fleshed out what it was that he was saying when he began this teaching back in the early part of chapter 5. In other words, he's describing those who mourn from verse 4, those who are meek from verse 5, those who hunger for righteousness more than revenge in verse number 6, those who are peacemakers, who are reconciliation seekers and facilitators in verse number 9, and those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake in verses 10 to 12. Well, being persecuted, being reviled, being slandered, being afflicted, or even being killed for Christ certainly does not mean being loved and adored and applauded and awarded and celebrated by the wicked world in which we live. In other words, it, it has to mean something. And what do we think it means to be persecuted, reviled, and, and so on? Well, Jesus is talking about, well, how are you going to respond to those sort of things? Now, again, these commands, these are what direct our lives if we're going to truly be salt and light in this present world. If we're going to really let our light shine out so that men see our good works, and remember what was the result of that, that men will glorify God. So we really do have to weigh our actions, and particularly when we think about these sort of interpersonal relationships and all the many difficulties and complexities that can come with that 
But we really do have to, to weigh out our lives in the balance of obscuring the gospel and bringing reproach on Jesus Christ. Well, given that choice, we should rather suffer wrong and suffer reproach on ourselves, which is not only the command, but it's also the example of Jesus Christ. And again, Peter is, is talking a lot about this um, in his epistles. Christ loved us. And, and Paul said in, in, in Romans 5 that even when we were his enemies, he loved us. John the apostle made it very plain that we love God and the only reason that we love God is because he first loved us. So Christ, even when we were his enemies, says that he loved us enough to die for us, that we might be saved through faith in him. And this is what Jesus says that we are to do if we are going to live for and like him.